You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Tuesday, April 30th, 2013, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jane Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Are we still an effective team? <laughs> <laughs> we are still an effective Not team. Not in Evan. the slightest. Yes. <laughs> hey, happy anniversary, everybody. That's right. Oh, oh my God. The show goes out on May 4th, which is exactly our eight year anniversary. Exactly. May the 4th be with it. you. Yeah. Eight years. years. It eight seems years. like every week we have some arbitrary Milestone. anniversary to celebrate. Milestone. Yeah. 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 This one's a little less than arbitrary. This yeah. Is eight eight freaking years. Yeah. I guess That's a, nice a long slice time. of life. Yeah. So how many episodes? This is 407. Wow. Hey, you know how we, we say on the, we read a lot of news items on the show and we're like, and they say in five years they're going to get this. We could have actually followed up on some of those five year things. That's right. Do you guys remember? I don't, I, this was right before we recorded episode one. It didn't make it onto the show, but there was talk about the alpha constant, which might not be constant. Bob, do you remember yeah. that specifically? Not in the slightest. One Dr. Michael Murphy of Cambridge University was speaking at the Physics 2005 conference, and he suggested that the fine structure constant, which is one of the cornerstones of physics, might not be constant after all. He was comparing gas cloud fingerprints with those obtained on Earth and uh, comparing them to the ones in space, and he concluded that the alpha has changed by about one part in 200,000 during the last 10 billion years. So, which doesn't sound like a lot. It's a little hard to kind of put that in some sort of perspective. But what he's saying is it may, we may not, it may not be constant and we need more research to find out, uh, if in fact, uh, it is. So did they do more research? There has been more research done. They've done more research. Other scientists have done more research. And, and eight years later, they're still in the same place where they started. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> it, it's, it nice. is not widely accepted that there's any variation, um, in the, uh, in the constant. I was looking at some news items as well. There was a few that I remembered from that period of time that I wanted to follow up on. Do you guys remember the T-Rex proteins? Oh, yeah. Nope. We, re we, we reported on it. Initially, it was, hey, these scientists found some T-Rex proteins, and it was you know, like 68 million-year-old proteins from a T-Rex. It was cool, and, and they were bird proteins. So it said, yeah, dinosaurs are related to birds. It all sounded good. Well... After that, I started reading, and Steve, uh, Steven Salzberg contacted me. Actually, I think that was the first person to say, hey, the rest of the community is not accepting this. So there was a lot of pushback, a lot of pushback against the original scientists who made this claim. There were those who said it's a contaminant, others who were saying it's they didn't do good statistical analysis. It's just a fluke in the data that they really didn't prove it's real. Then um, there were clamors to release the original data. The, the researchers refused for a while. Then they relented. So now, uh, eight years later, where does all this stand? It seems like, actually, that the original scientists who, who claimed to find the protein are doing a lot of follow-up research, have answered a lot of the critics, and they are putting together a much more compelling story. Really? That they have actually... 65-plus million-year-old dinosaur proteins. They did a hadrosaur, a different specimen. 
They used sterile equipment and really tried to answer all the contamination issues. They did statistical analysis to address all of the those criticisms. But it seems like the rest of the community is, still isn't accepting it. They're saying essentially that all this data is coming out of one research team. It really needs to be independently replicated, and they still haven't addressed the contamination issue. Maybe the contamination isn't coming from their equipment, but these bones laid in the ground for a long time, and we can't be sure that the proteins that they're isolating are actually soft tissue from the creatures that left those bones behind as opposed to just some other source. It's actually a nice story about the process of science. It's one Mm -hmm. of those stories where they made a claim, it got picked apart ruthlessly by the rest of the scientific community, and then they they had to do more and more rigorous methods to address all the criticisms. It really is a nice story. I just assume that they would just like cry and whine about how they're being oppressed and censored. Yeah, right. yeah that's right. right. Isn't that what they're supposed to do? Yeah, By the closed-minded scientists? Yeah, claim there's a conspiracy against them. Mm. And try to get their theory taught in schools anyway. Teach the controversy. Yeah, yeah teach the that's controversy. Right. Teach the controversy. Dinosaur protein controversy. controversy. Here's some other, some other news items from 2005. Ten planets or eight. Hmm. A rage and controversy over whether or not the new... Kuiper Belt object should be named the tenth planet, or should Pluto be demoted and not be considered a planet? Oh God! That, what what happened? What happened? Doesn't ring a bell. Uh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, how about this one? The first human to have to control a robotic arm with an implanted computer chip. When was that? Eight years wow. ago, two thousand five. Oh, oh wow. God, that is awesome! I just how read an recent article today. That, yeah, right. That, yeah. There was uh, some person today that. Um, they were controlling a, a robotic arm, and it moved like a human arm, and it had the same type of uh, dex. Not, you know, maybe not in the fingers, but definitely the other joints had the we're same level there. of dexterity. Absolutely yeah. getting there. And one more: at the time, the smallest rocky exoplanet was seven point five times the size of the oh Earth. Oh my God! Can you remember? That's huge. Remember the days? Yeah, back Good in the days. day. So where so day. where are where are we now? What what what's this, the closest to Earth size? That we oh, found? we have okay. multiple worlds that are the one, same one size of the one, Earth, yeah, you know, or smaller, zero. even a little smaller. Bob, they looked yeah. at them with a the uh, telescope, and there was people waving to us. <laughs> God, I like I like this because this is like those where are they now episodes of 2020 or whatever that they do on Saved by the Bell. Like, right, right, yeah, that? right. Where, <laughs> whatever. Where are they now? Whatever, whatever the happened Olsen to those T Rex yeah. proteins? Yeah. Here's the article from July of 2005: single atom thick materials almost ready for prime time. Wow, right. they're talking about carbon graphene. Nano, graphene, carbon nanotubes, fibers. Yeah, I graphene. remember graphene. Here's oh, what it boy. said: the researchers noted that some of the applications were probably decades away, but they expected to see ultra-fast transistors, micromechanical devices, and nanosensors based on one atom thick crystals ready in a few years' time. Well, fast forward a few years' time, and just a month ago, here's the here's the headline from a month ago: flash memory chip built built out of single atom thick components. Wow. There you go. Yep. They put them together with traditional components and made a flash memory drive. It's still a few layers thick. It's not a single layer, but, but it works. It absolutely works. They've put stuff on there, erased it many times to see how it hold, how it holds up and everything. And so there it is, you know, uh, science in action and it's actually coming to fruition. It's sort of pretty much exactly as they said it would. Cool. 
Well, guys, happy anniversary. Here's to another eight years. Is that Cheers. scary or exciting? Here, here. Very scary. <laughs> At least eight more years. I'm good. I'm good for a while. I don't know. I got some shit to do. Yeah, no, con- no comment. Yeah. Yeah, I have to reorganize my sock drawer, you know. Washing my hair next Wednesday. <laughs> I have to defrag my hard drive. <laughs> all right, all right. I'll, give, I'll, I'll give you another eight years, Steve, but we're going to change a few things. All right. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's go on to a few news items. Uh, Rebecca, you're going to tell us about politics and funding scientific research. Yes. A little bit of background first, because not all of our listeners are in the U.S. Amongst those who are in the U.S., uh, they may not be familiar with some of this stuff. So NSF is the National Science Foundation, and they are responsible for something along the lines of 20% of all federally funded science is, is funded by them. They have a budget of around $7.5 So how do they decide which research gets funded? They currently do that through a peer review process. And what they're, what they're looking for is research that is in the public interest and also, uh, important to science as a whole. So it could be very basic science. It could be applicable science. Um, they, they fund a, a broad range of things, but they're, what they're mostly looking for is how this research contributes to scientific understanding as a whole. Well, there is a bill right now uh, that's in draft that's sponsored by Lamar Smith, who is uh, kind of well-known recently as the sponsor of the Stop Online Piracy Act, SOPA, which was shot down last year, um, which would have had some say catastrophic effects on how we use the internet. Lamar Smith is now the head of the House Science Committee, and his bill would replace the peer review process that uh, determines what the NSF funds, and it would replace that process with a political hearing, basically. Um, so politicians would be the people who would determine where all of this money is going, and in particular, what they would be looking for, I'll read to you from the actual bill. They would look for research proposals that are in the interests of the United States to advance the national health, prosperity, or welfare, and to secure the national defense by promoting the progress of science. The finest quality is groundbreaking and answers questions or solves problems that are of utmost importance to society at large and not duplicative of other research projects being funded by the foundation or other federal science agencies. So there are a lot of problems with that. I mean, at first blush, it may seem like all of those are good, positive things to work towards. But I mean, first and foremost, the problem is that you have politicians who are determining what the most sci- most important scientific research is that needs to be funded. Um, so that in and of itself, you're immediately opening up the science funding to, to politics. So for instance, if Lamar had a problem with, say, global warming research, he could possibly torpedo the funding for it. Yeah, it basically opens the door for any politician to, to destroy any research that they politically don't care, don't 
uh, favor. Exactly. And a, lo- a lot of researchers are worried because of the seeming focus on things like national defense. Like, uh, there's, there's a ton of good science that's being done that's at a very foundational level. In other words, it's not, you know, the results of this science aren't necessarily going to be quote unquote groundbreaking. They're not going to create jobs immediately or create weapons. Uh, they're, but they're very important to our scientific understanding, to yeah. our, the body of knowledge. And this bill would automatically preclude uh, research like that from being funded. So, you know, and, and I mean, if this doesn't worry you, then just picture Sarah Palin uh, on the campaign trail complaining about wasted research money on fruit flies. Uh, anybody who knows anything about science knows how important research on fruit flies can be um, and how common it is. So imagine a politician like Sarah Palin or like this guy, like uh, Lamar Smith, who have no scientific background, no scientific training, suddenly being the people who decide where this seven and a half billion dollars is going. It's Frankly, it's terrifying. And it would be a disaster. It, yeah, it's it doesn't. It doesn't unmitigated disaster. So yeah, you're right. I I agree. It, it, first of all, you could, could potentially torpedo any basic science research, and they have a a, a whole clause in there that says that they're not going to do any research that duplicates other research. But that's replication, baby. I mean, what's wrong with that? Right. You can't. So no replication. So this is a maximally naive. Interference on the the uh, process of deciding what's valuable to research. This happens actually quite frequently, uh, where funders say that oh we want our money to go towards essentially what they're saying is translational research or research that will have a specific usable outcome. So in medicine, for example, you have grassroots organizations that raise money to cure a disease. They go oh we want the research to all go to studies which can potentially cure this disease or improve the outcome for patients. And they're putting a massive thumb on the scale that has a very detrimental effect. They mean well. I understand where their heart is. But the problem is that you can't know how to balance basic science, translational, and clinical or or application research unless you're in the field. That balance is is a takes a lot of judgment, and only the experts in the field can really know where we are. And when you shift that balance because you want research that's going to have some specific application, you could actually slow down the progress in the field that you're funding by taking away funds and researchers and resources and university you know, space, et cetera, away from the more basic research where we really need to be focusing our efforts. So this this would be a complete disaster. And it's just totally naive. It's just completely naive. There maybe has been, I don't know, a, a lack of communication or something. The NSF director or any panels having to do with them have not explained things clearly enough to uh, Smith and and his colleagues, but yeah, no, yeah. you can't, you cannot well, have these politicians calling those shots. In in fact, uh, there's been more communication than has ever existed in the what sixty year history of the NSF, because for the first time ever, Representative Smith petitioned the NSF, basically uh, wrote them a letter and demanded to see the anonymous. What, what, what's supposed to be the anonymous review of a number of studies that had been funded by NSF that 
perhaps he did not feel should have been funded. And this is a request that no representative has ever made of the NSF before. And the uh, NSF responded with a strongly worded letter that was quite entertaining. You can you can read all of it on um, over at uh, Science's website, news.sciencemag.org. All right. Thanks, Rebecca. Uh, Evan, you're going to tell us about the latest paranormal scam. Yeah, this one's uh, not as elaborate or sophisticated as other scams out there, but it seems to be effective. Uh, coming to us courtesy of CBS New York, uh, it seems that con artists are targeting Chinese immigrants, specifically in Brooklyn, New York, with a uh, particular scam. They will walk up to their target, sometimes right in the street, demand cash from them or jewels or something else of value. And if they don't hand it over, they will threaten them with an evil curse. They will say things like, oh, evil will now befall you or your family members will suffer. And this has been dubbed the cash or curse scam. So again, you've got these elderly Chinese people, right? They're a very superstitious demographic. And, you know, this, it's basically a form of thuggery that is being performed on them. And they have been known to give over their valuables, their possessions. The scam is not limited to New York either. These crimes have been reported across the country and in other countries around the world. So this has taken root. And because of its effectiveness, people are taking advantage of them. Yeah, I mean, it, it is just taking advantage of a demographic that has a high rate of uh, superstition. I think also, you know, it's a, this is a form of elder abuse. There's, con artists in general target the elderly because you know, maybe they're not quite as savvy with the latest technology. So, you know, computer scams against older people are very common. Or maybe they have, you know, mild cognitive impairment. So they're actually not taking advantage of a population that has medical problems, you know. They also are a population that potentially can have a lot of money because they have life savings. You know, they have money they've accumulated over their lives. And, and, and it's not uncommon for for older uh, victims to to be swindled out of, as you say, Evan, out of their life savings. It's just terrible. Yeah, and it seems to stem from something in the past called the Chinese Blessing Scam. So I read some articles about this from years past. So as opposed to thuggery in the street, what the conars will do is they will go into the shops and markets of these places owned by by Chinese people. They'll ask them for money, you know, a shakedown. And if they refuse, they'll say, you know, okay, well, now your family's going to become ill. What they'll do is is that in some cases, these scammers will direct the victim to a relative or a quote-unquote doctor who purportedly has the power to avert the certain disaster that's going to be that's going to become to them. And they'll say something like, all right. If you want to get out of this, bring a bag of valuables with you. Go see this person, all right, and they'll get it taken care of. And what they'll do is they'll pull a switcheroo. They'll take, like, jewels and stuff out of the bag and replace it with other things, like bags of rice and water bottles and other other things, and they'll instruct them, don't open this until you get home or wait for a week or two, you know, seven to ten days. And then uh, after that, you'll you'll find that they'll, no curse will befall you and, and the good spirits and good blessings will be on, will, will be with you by the time. And they'll pay attention to the to these instructions. And then they'll realize two weeks later that, that you know, they've been robbed. Um, the Chinese blessing scam is what that's called. So this is like a variation of that. Yeah. And this is also no different than psychics, you know, who 
uh, tell people that they are cursed or that they have some kind of evil threatening them and that they need to have the, the blessing done by the psychic. And sometimes that involves, like, you have some cursed money, so bring me this stack of cash and we'll cleanse it. And, of course, that process always seems to result in the money vanishing, mm-hmm. which when you think about it, I mean, it seems like such an obvious con. So the police are aware of it. It's being reported all over the country. Hopefully awareness will bring about the best in, in the people that they won't fall for it. But also maybe, you know, the authorities can bring some of these criminals to justice. Let's hope. Right. All right, Jay, tell us about the International Thermonuclear Experimental Reactor. This news item really caught me by surprise. I I had never heard of this project before. It's called the the ITER project, I-T-E-R. I'm pretty sure it's pronounced ITER. And it's the International Thermonuclear Experimental Reactor. And the word ITER in Latin means the way. And this is a fusion research and engineering project uh, whose goal is to demonstrate that it it's possible to produce more energy from the fusion process than is used to initiate it. And this, of course, has not been achieved in pre- in previous attempts. If the project works, what we'll end up with is a model of what the next generation would look like. So this isn't actually going to be a reactor that's supposed to be used to power homes. It's more of just an experiment to do a proof of concept. The project is funded and run by the European Union, India, Japan, China, Russia, South Korea, and the United States, with the European Union investing about 45% of the money to do it. Uh, under the current design, when fully functional, it's supposed to produce 500 megawatts per 50 megawatts spent, and that's an order of magnitude of energy creation. So as an example, 500 megawatts could power about 300,000 average homes. They began construction in 2007, and the main question is, why is this a big deal? So I thought first, let's quickly define fusion. Fusion is when two hydrogen atoms are merged, forming helium and neutron particles. There is a slight loss of energy when the atoms are merged in in the form of heat. Fusion takes place in amazingly high temperatures needed to overcome the repulsive forces that keep atoms apart from each other. Neutrons shoot off during the fusion process, and their energy is where the heat comes from. The sun's core is about 15 million degrees Celsius, and that's where the fusion is taking place. Fusion, of course, has been the dream of science since the beginning of the atomic age, which is in 1945. And some people say the beginning of the atomic age was when we set off the first nuclear bomb. Um, But it was soon thereafter that the public became more and more aware of it. Over the next few years, about a a million individual components of this highly complex fusion reactor will start to arrive in France, in the south of France, where the reactor is housed. Um, These are being built all around the world. And this project, in my opinion, is epic for a lot of different reasons. Um, First, it's proving a huge triumph in countries working together in diplomacy and science and engineering. It really It's hitting on a lot of fronts here, and I think it's awesome. Carlos Alejandre, who is the project's deputy director, responsible for safety, said... It is the largest scientific collaboration in the world. In fact, the project is so complex, we even had to invent our own currency known as the ITER unit of account to decide how much each country pays for its share. Now, I, I thought Another that... one of those. Yeah, it's, it's the Bitcoin of the fusion world, right? Um, I thought that the International Space Station was the biggest um, global project, but it, you know, this and that, I guess, are the two top. Okay, one play, one uh, source I read said that only the International Space Station is bigger. So yeah, that's uh, what I read too. Yeah. Okay. 
I, you know, the great thing is, is, you know, fusion reactors don't produce any CO2. There isn't any pollutants that come out like burning fossil fuels or any of that, which would be fantastic to get away from. Yeah, there's um, no way, there's no way to have a meltdown. I mean, that's not a concern at all with fusion. Yeah, you're right, Bob. Dr. Alejandre said a Fukushima-like accident is impossible at either because the fusion reaction is fundamentally safe. Any disturbance from ideal conditions in the reaction will stop. A runaway nuclear reaction and a core meltdown are simply not possible. I love reading that. I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled that, you know, we, we are working mm. on this project and that it actually sounds phenomenally safe and the output could be, could be extreme. But, but, you know, just trying to find out where we are right now with this, it's not like we know it's going to work, right? I mean, this is still experimental technology and there are problems that need to be solved. Absolutely, Steve. Yeah. Like I said, this is a proof of concept. They're going to be building this hugely expensive facility, testing out the latest and greatest theories that they have. I mean, they have a design. They're building to a spec. They know what they're trying to achieve, and they know exactly what they're building. They're not fashioning anything at this point. But we won't actually know until about the year 21 or 22, and that's when the first uh, plasma is scheduled. Um, that's when the ionized gases will be injected into, into the mechanism. And by 28, by the year 27, 28, it's going to quote unquote go nuclear with injection of, uh, what's it, how do you pronounce it? Tritium? Tritium, yeah, tritium. Yeah. And then by 2030, the first demonstration of the fusion reactor to produce electricity and have that electricity be inserted into the grid will happen. Now, Keep this in mind. They don't really think that a first commercial nuclear fusion power plant. Jay, will hit. are you saying nuclear? I, I don't. It doesn't matter. Yes. Steve. I can't. Nuclear. 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 In 2050, <laughs> about they're saying that if everything goes well, that's when we would be able to start the first commercial nuclear. Fusion power plants. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? Thanks, Rebecca. Oh. But this has the potential of creating, as you, you know, a tremendous amount of energy without creating greenhouse gases and to, you know, meet our growing needs or at least a part of it, if it all works out. Right. Plus, so on, let's see on what demand happens. 24-7, you know, you don't, the sun doesn't have to be shining, the wind doesn't have yeah. to be blowing, none of that. Certainly would be nice. And this, this may not be the technology that gets us to fusion. There are other de- designs out there and other paths oh, yeah. that are, people are taking. This yeah. is just one. All right. Aren't we supposed to have a Mr. Fusion in two years? <laughs> right. That's not going to uh, happen. You like Mr. Fusion? Right. <laughs> Bob, quickly tell us how Einstein is right yet again. Einstein's general relativity has been shown to be accurate for the bajillionth time. A science, awesome. scientist, oh, just about <laughs> right? Yeah, right. Sci- oh, but there's more. Oh, but there's more. Scientists verified that general relativity's predictions are accurate, even when dealing with the most extreme astronomical cases, namely the orbital characteristics of uh, one of the biggest pulsars that they've ever found, uh, which was also being orbited by a white dwarf. So it's a binary system. And when I first read this, I was almost like, you know, big deal. Except, you know, except for quantum mechanics, Albert Einstein pretty much was right on the ball. Of about everything, right? His special and general theories of relativity have survived pretty much every assault that's been made on them. Not pretty much, every every last one. And they've always emerged unscathed. So so what is different about this? And this was interesting because it is a little bit different. 
First of all, this was an incredibly, the most extreme test of its kind for general relativity. It's never been through the ringer like this one. The binary system that they studied was really incredible. This pulsar was, is amazing. It's twice the mass of the sun, yet it's only 12 miles, 20 kilometers across. Imagine that, taking the sun, doubling its mass, mm -hmm. and then squeezing it down to 12 miles. Amazing. There's, there's only been one other pulsar that's ever been found that's even in this, in this one's class in terms of size and density. So it's pretty special. And then talking about gravitational pull, this one surprised me. 300 billion times greater than the force of that Earth is pulling on your feet or, or your butt. 300 or billion. Or your butt right now. 300 billion times greater gravitational pull. So that means that each cubic centimeter sized mass on it weighs more than a billion tons. That's, that's a little bit bigger than just a regular, you know, normal six sided die. I mean, just a, a, an, yeah. amazing, an amazing density. So, so you add to that the fact that this, this behemoth rotates on its axis 25 times a second and the the white yeah. dwarf orbits around that every two two and a half hours or so so when scientists discovered this they quickly realized that wow this binary system would be an amazing location to put einstein under its toughest test yet and uh and this test was all about gravitational waves which was, which was pretty key so you guys have heard about gravitational waves right yeah, to get oh, a yeah. handle mm -hmm. to yeah. get a handle on them, you kind of need to know the, uh, general relativity explains gravity as mass warping the space time fabric of the universe. Right? Everyone's heard that almost a billion sure. times. So, sure. So, so once Einstein realized this, though, it was it was really a small <laughs> step for him to kind of realize that an object moving in this warp space time would create ripples in this four dimensional fabric that would then propagate outwards, and that means that this, the energy contained in this binary system is being lost because of these gravitational waves that are radiating away and this this energy loss manifests itself as a decrease in their mutual orbit so they're slowly getting closer and closer together so this is happening to the earth in orbit around the sun good question jay it absolutely is the earth is actually losing 200 joules a second through gravitational ra gravitational Radiation, two, uh, it's not, it's not as much as you think. It's a lot of gems. 200 joules. Yeah, 200 joules. Um, so this means we're getting closer to the sun every day. And now tomorrow, the earth will be one proton's width closer to the sun. Now, okay, that's not dramatic. And that's because we're, we're so far away mm -hmm. and, and we'd never detect that kind of change observationally from even from, you know, especially from 7,000 light years away. But this binary system is so massive and it's close together that we can detect the effects of gravitational waves. And that's just exactly what they did. The prediction made by general relativity compared to what the scientists observed matched perfectly. Namely, the orbital decay was about eight millionths of a second per year. Einstein wins. Yeah, well, yeah, he's, he's, he's been confirmed again. So why was this test performed if, uh, if general relativity has been validated so many times? And this is kind of the interesting angle to this I, that I found. So that's because general relativity almost definitely will be, will be wrong at some point. Now, it's not that the theory is wrong. Mm. Obviously, it's been, it's been shown to be right too often. There's definitely something to it. It, but it can't be the final explanation. Right. So today's not the day. And I never, I never thought I'd, I'd say this, but hopefully one day we will test Einstein and uh, we'll, we will have a, a news item that says Einstein was wrong. Einstein's shown to be wrong. Not, not that his theories are wrong, but just that they found the edge, you know, the, incomplete. The, uh, the, we, we found where, you know, where his theories don't hold sway anymore. And, uh, and then we can start getting into even, you know, the next layer to this amazing, this, uh, this amazing onion we call physics. 
Wow. All right. I, I just made that. I just made that up right on that the was spot. An inspiring <laughs> metaphor. <laughs> Beautiful imagery, yeah. Bob. Wait, what else has layers? What else has physics. layers? Not ogres. <laughs> All right. Well, before we go on to Who's That Noisy, we're going to have a special segment of the show where we do another movie review. Yeah. Prometheus review is so popular. We all, didn't we, see the movie Oblivion? Yes. <laughs> sure. Right? I did. Yeah. And there's good news. All right. And well, you guys. Rebecca. Uh, I was at the, I was at the I, movie theater and I was going to go. In line. And I was yeah. getting my ticket. And then I saw there were. When suddenly. There's Jurassic Park 3D. <laughs> you already saw it. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> and, and, Wait. you know, I don't think there are any Scientologists in Jurassic Park 3D. Michael Crichton's. Uh, it was a douche, but he's dead. He's not seen any of it. So uh maybe I went to see Jurassic Park instead of a movie. Oh. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about but, Jurassic Park then. But <laughs> we can talk about Jurassic Park. Uh But I did. I read the Wikipedia page for Oblivion. So I know <laughs> I know all the spoilers. All the spoilers. Bummer. <laughs> all right. So we are going to be talking about the movie Oblivion. And we will be giving massive spoilers. So if you don't haven't seen the movie yet, fast forward to Who's That Noisy? Uh, and then you can come back and listen to this after you have watched the movie. So for those of you who did see the movie, what did you guys Are think we about it? Now? Oh, what was your overall impression of the movie? This is a better than Prometheus. Better than, absolutely, it was I, Tom, Tom Cruise movie where praise. he. Uh, it's a future movie. Aliens have attacked and destroyed the Earth with war, and the. Cruz is one of the last humans, apparently, on the Earth. Right. The idea was that he's one of the people that are left behind to do cleanup and to finish gathering right. the Earth's water so they can the humanity can move to Triton. Titan. Yeah. Titan, rather. Sorry. Titan. Right. So they so yeah. so people humans basically defeated the aliens, but they had to destroy the Earth in order to in the in the process. So that kind of sucks. But guys, I I liked it. I mean, I I do have this bias against Cruz. It's hard to uh, enjoy him anymore. But I think he did a decent job. I enjoyed the movie. It, it dragged a little bit in uh, in the second act, but uh, I, overall I enjoyed it. And I was actually a little disappointed that there. I mean, after Prometheus, uh, it was there was wasn't a lot of uh, meat to to chew on in terms of egregious science uh, screw-ups. Nothing there, as bad as Prometheus, but there are some not. things worth right. mentioning. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Otherwise, we wouldn't even be doing this. Are you going to start start with the Yeah, moon? the opening was- scene, you know, the, the aliens, they when they attacked the Earth, the first thing they did was blow up the moon, which which Boom. threw the Earth into earthquakes and tsunamis. And tsunami, and, and, and that, yeah, that really would not have worked. Um, I mean, if they actually... Blew the moon to smithereens that didn't that couldn't recoalesce together. That was kind of redundant. Then yeah, that would that would be a problem. But uh, if you looked at the moon, it was it was kind of cool. It was a really nice image. It was huge chunks that were kind of gravitationally bound together with this smear of finer debris going uh, in opposite in opposite directions. And it looked really it looked really cool. And I liked how they lit up the fine debris at the outskirts um and yeah. in, in the night sky. And that was cool. But you would not have that dev- devastation. Uh as a gravitational force, the moon was still there. It was still pretty much close enough together that uh the, the tides yeah. really wouldn't have been impacted. And the moon would have come back together. You wouldn't have big chunks of the moon hanging right next to each other. Right, their, their mutual gravity would have just brought it right back together. There, there exactly. might have been. They did show kind of a ring of debris, and you could have a ring of debris. You know, mm-hmm. smaller pieces that are far enough away from the moon 
that they're in orbit around the Earth, right? And wouldn't wouldn't have coalesced back to the main section of the moon. But you wouldn't have these two chunks right next to each other. Yeah, but not and, but not collapsing back into a sphere. Right. So how and, long and, do you think it would take for it to to recoalesce? Not sixty it years. Depend, it depends, Jay, uh, how devastated it was. Uh, but since the chunks were so intact, I think that they it was kind of like a kind of a mini destruction. It really they kind of blew it apart a little bit, but it never really got that far apart. I do know though that scientists think that when the moon initially formed, you know, you had this Mars-sized objects impact the Earth. All this all this debris went into orbit around the Earth. It was past the Roche limit, so it didn't rain down on Earth, and then it, it, co- it coalesced right. into the moon. And, but, and they were very surprised that it took only about a century for that, that huge ring around the Earth to, to form one, possibly two moons for a brief period of time before, right. they, before they went together. But it only took a century, so it, I think it would, it, would, it would reform relatively quickly as long as the, the debris was in the proper orbit and not too, and not too low. And it looked like it did. It looked Those like two it was. chunks yeah. that they were showing, they would – Collapse back together within seconds. I mean, immediately they wouldn't be they, right. They were so hanging, close. Yeah, they'd yeah. be hanging apart at all. But I have uh, some problems with the core plot of the movie. Now, this, of course, this is a little bit contrived. And you, and whenever you have an alien attacking the Earth movie, you always have to uh, allow for certain contrivances just to make the movie possible. But we talked about this before. Why would aliens bother coming to the Earth just to suck up our water? Right. Right. That's what they were doing. Delicious. Yeah, right. Uh, they yeah. mentioned fusion. <laughs> I th- they mentioned fusion. Uh, so I think they were they were they were using the hydrogen in the water. Uh, Why not fusion. suck the hydrogen out of Jupiter? I know it's ridiculous. Think, yeah, think yeah. of the energy. Bad think choice. Of the energy they expended just getting here. So yeah, let's let's use mm-hmm. all this energy and then let's suck up the ocean so that we can recover point oh 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 one percent of the energy that we just expended getting here. Sorry. <laughs> Sounds like a government. Oh my god, program. so so stupid. I mean, it's yeah, a lot find, of water. It's a lot of water, find, but find come a on. nice gas giant somewhere that's not inhabited by people who are going to try to kill you. <laughs> so <laughs> right or defend their planet. So Steve, you're saying that the the writers could have come up with a better reason why they needed Earth. Maybe that it's we a, have. Yeah, it's cliche. You know, it's lazy. It doesn't really work. It does. The math doesn't even work. And so that, but but that's so. You're all right. You got to give them that just to make the movie happen. And but it was just, a cool image. <laughs> those those, were, those uh, machines were kind yeah. of a, were very cool looking yeah. out, you know, extending out into the horizon, sucking up the water. It was a cool image, and I think right. that's what probably sold them on it more than anything else. The alien ship was a huge D four, which I like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a big. It was a big pyramid. Mm. I was the tetrahedron. <laughs> yeah. well, the problem I I found with the movie was much more in the. The writing and directing, because I was able to predict almost everything that was going on. Yeah, oh, the on. instant, the instant it, you see Tom Cruise's clone, you know it's his clone. I mean, yeah, yeah that's, that's what I was going to ask. Well, what the hell? When I was reading be? the Wikipedia page. As soon as I read that he had had his memory erased, I'm like, oh, he's a clone. Yeah, <laughs> that did, really. Like yeah. it seemed like this borrowed really heavily from every other. Yeah, like it sounded like Moon. It did. Sounded like they were trying yeah. to go. Wow. Like a I mean, moon j- just type a memory thing. wipe clued you into the, that he was a clone? Yeah, I don't know. Like, that's just that's pretty what good. popped into my head. Well, you knew it You're wasn't for the, for the superficial reason, given that it was for security. You knew that it was. Right. For, like, that's dumb. Yeah. Right. Yes. Like, no, obviously, it's not yeah. that. But they don't expect you to believe that that's the real reason, I think. Yeah. All right. The other major core plot element of the movie that, again, is contrived and lazy is 
Really? So the the super advanced aliens get here with their massive ship, and then to take over the Earth, they send down clones. They send out yeah. an army of yeah. clones to subdue the human population on the Earth. Yeah, but a little virus. Yeah, or something what that, yeah, nanites. Dust them along. Yeah, nanites, gas, viruses, robots. Tiny robots. Well, they, yeah, they already had they the have robots. drones, right? Like, why didn't they send those? I think they, uh, they this probably is need an honest they, question they, because they I probably need seen too it. many of them. I mean, why don't just, you just know, nuke the continents? What the hell? Tom Cruise's job was to uh, to repair them and, and find them. It was so ridiculous. Like, you know, first of all, the, the why are the drones getting damaged so much? I mean, there's, you know, well, there's they, not that many humans left. Yeah, I guess there was enough to uh, occasionally take out a drone here and there. Their, their attack plan seemed silly. I mean... If they, if we were just an infestation in their way of sucking up all of our water, I mean, if they had the technology to get here, they would be able to wipe us out without having to send down an army or drones. There would be so many ways to do that. We wouldn't have it. We wouldn't have a chance against them. Because, especially since this whole thing starts in 2017. That's another right. thing. Yes. What the hell? Why did you make that movie start four years from now? Four years from when now. When <laughs> you could have easily made it 50 or 60 or 70 years where when it's actually plausible that we would have the tech that they were saying we're going to have in four years. I mean, the, the, no, the tech was the alien tech, Steve. No, I know. Yeah. No, but Jay, I'm talking about this, the NASA ship they sent to yes. investigate that yes. we would have to be the building Odyssey. that thing five years ago. To have yep. that ship oh, in 2017. I thought the what, same thing, yeah. What, 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 there Thanks. was absolutely no reason for them not to just have it all happen in 2050, you right. know? Yeah. They're, they're flying that thing around like it's a shuttlecraft from and, Star Trek Next Generation. No way. And, yeah, and Steve, the, the, I can only think of right now of a couple examples of, the, of that tech that was out of whack. The, the, the NASA ship, which we clearly won't have, and those sleeping units. I had, oh, yeah. I, I had a problem with them. Yeah, now, keeping someone they, they alive. They had, they yeah. had these... They had these Coffin-like techno devices that basically put you to sleep, and they they call it Delta, Delta, Delta sleep. They call it yeah. Delta sleep. Some Del- of the characters Del- were asleep for sixty years. Now Delta sleep, of course, con- to me conjures an image of Delta. What well, Delta sleep? Right? It, it's your deepest sleep. Your Delta waves are the slowest and highest amplitude brain waves, and the, so it makes you think by their naming convention that they were they were in in a you know they were asleep in some way. They were they were kind of asleep, and when they were inside it, they looked asleep. They they weren't frozen. They weren't preserved in any other way. So so going with mm-hmm. that theme, it, it's ridiculous. You're you're not going to sleep for sixty years. I mean, you're going to need some level of metabolism. You're going to, you're going to still be aging. And you're certainly not going to pop out of the coffin, yeah, and then, for lack of a better term, and start right, moving yeah, around and, and stuff. Puke, right? and then you're then you're good <laughs> like to go. Happened. No, so so I, I didn't like that idea of, of using the term Delta sleep. I mean, yeah, yeah I think could, it's yeah, it's even worse than that. I mean, so the idea was that some of the crew was put in this you know, deep sleep or suspended animation for a couple of years while they got to their destination in the NASA spaceship. So you think, all right, even that's far-fetched. Definitely in in, in 20, actually, they, they must have launched in 2015, right? Or whatever, like next couple of years. They, no, 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 they didn't launch in 2015. They, 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 they found they, the Tet before they launched, and then they said, all right, now you're going to go to the Tet. You're not going to go to Jupiter. But it was, yeah, no, I know, but they were, they were at Tet yeah. in 2017. And mm-hmm. how long it took him time to get there? No, no, you Tet know? was like right by by Earth. I was thinking the same thing. I was thinking the same thing, Steve. Because why did it take sixty years for the escape pod to get back to Earth? It, no, it was in orbit for sixty years. It was, in, it was in orbit. Steve, listen, I was thinking the same thing, uh, the same exact thing, until they showed one camera angle where they showed the Tet, and then they showed the Earth right there. 
with with the, where the national ship was. So it, it, it was close. All right, I'm, it was really right. close. So yeah, I just missed that. That's all. But that oh, I have wait. a question about them being in orbit, though. Like they were in orbit for sixty mm-hmm. years. Like, why didn't the aliens just kill them? Yeah, like, did the or aliens not them. see them? Yeah, that makes no sense. That's why well, I thought that they were they they were sort of drifting back to Earth over that period of time. Okay, and also can can like what made them come to Earth after sixty years in orbit? Well, like, the, I would all think- right, the, the the surviving oh, humans the part, sent yeah. the ship a signal to to bring them down. Oh, okay. They, they did show that in the movie, but uh, okay. I thought so. Here, by so the so. But they said that they were supposed to be asleep for a couple of years, right? That's what the technology was designed for. So there's absolutely right. no way that they could just sleep for 60 years, as you're saying. That those sleep chambers that were designed for a couple of years would work for 60 years. And, it, you know, after 60 years of being in some sort of sleep slash suspended state, she, Stages. yeah, she, the, the actress who survives, the character who survives, who turned out to be Tom Cruise's wife, you know, yeah, she sits up, she pukes, she doesn't feel well. The next day she has a bowl of soup and she's good to go. I mean, her muscles would be gone, though. I mean, she would require, first of all, she would just, the idea that she could survive for 60 years is ridiculous. But even if she did, she would need months of rehab to get back to some kind of functioning. Yeah, yeah all they have to do, because it's sci-fi, they just have to have a throwaway just, line yeah. to explain it away. Yeah, oh, we, because, because of the blah, 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 you know. It's which is why your, it should yeah. have been 50 or 60 years in the future. Right. Where they could yeah. have said, oh, you're, don't worry, your nanites, blah, will take care of the whatever, you know. But something, they could have, they could have invoked some futuristic tech. But you right. can't do that in 2017. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well. <laughs> you don't know, Steve. Five years. <laughs> Yeah, four. Four. it all happen. Come on, that's that's right. You're right. Quantum four years. All right. So, what, any any other biggies for you guys? Uh, I didn't like the fact that so many iconic structures were still sort of standing. I get that they had to portray that things like okay, this is Washington D.C. and the Washington Monument is still standing, but nothing else around it is. Come on, the Washington Monument, that thing is barely holding up on its own, and like the earthquake. Two years ago, almost took the damn thing down. I mean, why would that be standing and not you know anything else within a 500 mile radius of it that seemed really yeah but you got, you got to show me. the monuments right that's like yeah. whenever whenever things happen like the aliens attack they always destroy the recognizable monuments around the world oh there goes the Taj Mahal and Big Ben and <laughs> and the uh, Eiffel Tower and the Washington Monument why was the ground level so high was that right. I didn't the, get that I didn't get any of that so like yeah so like the, the there was dirt basically imagine New York City with dirt up to the observation level of the exactly, Empire State Building. Exactly, the observation building. level of the Empire State Building. So it was cool. It was cool imagery because like some of the streets had collapsed. So it almost looked like the trenches from Star Wars. You know, the streets were these now these trenches deep down into the into the earth. My speculation is that tsunamis just washed a whole bunch of dirt in. Two would right. be hmm. dust fallout from the nuclear wars. Would that produce that much dust? Not if not there that even much. was nuclear. War. I think tsunami is the best guess, but I mean, would would the building still be standing? You well, know, but well, that's the yeah. Would, would would the Empire State Building still have been standing if you had such no a way. tsunami that that much silt no was washed into New York to bury Manhattan? Guys, also in that scene over in the distance were mountain ranges. So what? Mountains sprouted up in sixty years. Yeah, I don't know. In that time, it was I don't I don't know what they were thinking. Frankly, with with that, it was very. A lot of discontinuity there. I've got one, just a generic thing that you I see in. I'm watching Battlestar Galactica. I see it there. 
all these other, you've got these um, robotic probes, you've got these machines, there's no, nothing organic in them, and they're fighters or they're probes or they're whatever they are, and there's no way a human being is going to be in a dogfight with a, with a device that is immune to G-forces. Yeah, it, You know, you're these, right. these machines mm-hmm. can pull 10, 50, 100 Gs without a problem where Tom Cruise would be chunky sauce on the back of, on the back of his cockpit because he, he couldn't, he, they could not handle it. There's just no, no way that they, he'd be able to outmaneuver these uh, advanced alien probes. Please come up with a reason why nobody can hit anything when you're firing your weapon. I mean, you've, you've got these, pro- anybody who fired anything just never, never really hit it. I mean, I mean, what? They watched the A team too much, I guess, when they were practicing. You would think the alien tech would hit everything it wanted to hit, you know? They would- yeah, computer targeting would be, would be pretty damn accurate. Right. I, I developed what I call the Prometheus scale. Ooh. For describing how, uh, scientifically inaccurate a movie. That sounds is. very scientific. Yeah, so it's one to five. So we're going to give this movie <laughs> one to five Prometheuses. Right, so one. That's not. That's not a good. Hang on. <laughs> one Prometheus no. is minor but unnecessary scientific inaccuracies. Two Prometheus is multiple inaccuracies in plausible scenarios or at one major scientific gaffe. Three is multiple major scientific gaffes or an implausible premise to the whole movie. Four is the main plot of the movie is based on upon pseudoscience or a massive scientific misunderstanding. And five is the entire movie is one giant scientific (laughs) abomination, i.e. Prometheus. So (laughs) how many Prometheus would you give this movie? Uh, Two and a half. 2.75. Yeah, I give it a two. Yeah, Yeah, I was thinking two. This is a two Prometheus. I give your rating system 11 Prometheus. (laughs) (laughs) Promethei. Promethei. Two Promethei. Prometheopodes. <laughs> Still, though, it was it was a visually it was a it was a gorgeous gorgeous movie. I I loved his uh, his yeah. his craft was fantastic. It was gorgeous. Yeah. Even, even the landing gear were, were really the sperm. Cool. Yeah, it was good. Yeah. <laughs> Guys, I highly recommend that you go on YouTube and look up the making of that movie. They show the the main set is their house, which is a perch way up in the sky, and it's a very futuristic looking house. The set that they built for that is incredible. The the sky that you see from that set is actually projected onto a screen physically in the room where the set is, and they did that because they didn't want the green screen color to bounce off of all the reflective surfaces in the, on the set itself. So go take a look at it. That blew my cool. mind. Okay, Evan, quickly, who's that noisy? Here we go. Last week's Who's That Noisy. Let's do it. You want to create weight loss? You can start using feng shui. First of all, the best way is to have black or blue plates and actually making sure that you don't put too much on your plate at the same time. Quality advice. Use black or blue plates and don't put too much food on your plates and then you'll lose weight. (laughs) I think it has something to do with not putting too much food on your plates. That's feng shui for food apparently. Uh, Marie Diamond is the gal speaking there and I'll read her bio, a few lines of her bio. A globally renowned transformal leader featured in the worldwide phenomenon, The Secret. She uses her extraordinary knowledge of Bob quantum physics. The law of attraction and feng shui energy to help people transform their environments and their lives. What a quack. What a bunch of crap. I mean, really, millions of people buy her books and line up to see her. And uh, 
gosh, I can't. It's a sad it. commentary on our species. This week's winner of the contest is Miranda Richards. So well done, Miranda. Good guess. What do you got for this week? For this week, we have another noisy to play for you. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and turn this up a bit. You're going to have to listen a couple times, I think, to uh, take a guess. But uh, let's give it a shot here. Here we go. <laughs> Yeah, okay, so uh, here's a clue. If you've been paying attention to the news in the last week or two, you may have an advantage as to figuring out exactly what that is. So that's all I'm saying. WTN at theskepticsguide.org is our email address for Who's That Noisy Guesses. And on the message boards, we are the sguforums.com. Good luck, Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Evan. We're going to do one email this week. This question comes from Jim Finn from Horsham, PA, Pennsylvania. And Jim writes... Hi, guys. Got a question for you. Do you consider the search for extraterrestrial intelligence to be science or pseudoscience? I recently got into an online debate and found myself in the minority because I maintained that the central thesis that if intelligent life exists somewhere out there in the greater universe, we would be able to recognize it based upon patterns in radio waves is not falsifiable. It seems to me that there could be three reasons why. If we turn our telescopes in any specific direction, we would not find patterns in the radio waves. One, there's nothing there. Two, there's something there, but they haven't yet developed the technology to create those patterns. Or three, we're looking for the wrong things. It would seem to me that the only way to truly falsify SETI, we'd need to map quite literally everybody in the universe and rule them out one by one and say that they don't have anything there in terms of extraterrestrial intelligence. Unlike other complex hypotheses that are limited by available technologies, I'm not convinced that the task of mapping the universe is even possible, even with a sufficiently advanced technology. What do you think? Am I missing something? I'm not trying to argue that the endeavor of SETI is a waste of time or energy, but I'm just not sold on it qualifying as genuine science. Thanks. So what do you guys think about that? There's decades of research that has been that has been done, and the uh, consensus seems to be that it is actual science. What about um, what about his primary point there that the the main thesis of SETI is not falsifiable? I mean, it certainly sounds not. You know, non-falsifiable, but I, I, regarding this, I say, so what? I mean, it's, it's such, you know, space is such a big place. It, it's so huge and it'd be so hard to, f- to fully map it. But you have to balance that against the idea that we know that there's, li- that there's life out there and we pretty much know that there's intelligent life out there and they could be communicating with us. And, and the benefit of, of finding it would just far outweighs, you know, any argument I think you can, you can, muster about non-falsifiability wait 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 hold it hold it i I hope you don't mind bob my 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 jumping in here is this uh is this seth showstack from seti it is it is this is seth seth from seti didn't even didn't see you come in there well uh you know i used the the fire escape in the back door so you didn't you didn't notice (laughs) he was remotely viewing the podcast and he just had it pop in (laughs) that's right it was just being played into my brain listen (laughs) bob says that we know that they're out there and i'd i'd like to think he's right but of course we don't know that they're out there and that's really the point here the guy who sent you that email, in a sense, he's right. It's not a falsifiable hypothesis. You can't prove that the aliens are not out there. You can't do that. There's no way. He's absolutely right. You can't examine every square centimeter of real estate in the cosmos and say, well, they're just not there. But on the other hand, you can prove they are there if you find a signal. So, you know, this is exploration, and that's a valuable part of science. Not all science has to be falsifiable. 
Think about discovering uh, black holes or, or quasars. Nobody expected quasars. There was no hypothesis or hypothesis there. And it wasn't falsifiable. We just found them. It's exploration. Yeah, I totally agree, Seth. I think that observation and exploration is part of science. I think this comes from uh, arbitrarily narrowing the definition of science as if there's only one thing that counts as science, when in fact many endeavors are, count as part of the scientific process. And observation, sometimes even just raw observation, just looking to see what's there, absolutely counts. Also, I would argue that the the falsifiability of the hypothesis entirely depends on how you phrase it. As you said, if your hypothesis is there is no radio transmitting technological civilizations out there, that's falsifiable with one counterexample. There you go. You have a falsifiable hypothesis that you could answer by doing radio astronomy in the SETI program. So it's just it's a little contrived, just the you know, the way he's putting it together. It's not the purpose of SETI to prove that there isn't a single you know, radio transmitting civilization out there. It's just to survey, right, the, what we can survey and make statistical comments about the density of radio transmitting civilizations, right? Absolutely right. I mean, we're doing what, you know, Captain Cook did uh, 250 years ago, mm -hmm. right? I mean, he was sent out into the South Pacific by the British Admiralty, and the idea was to go see what's out there and, and map it and report and whatever, exploration. And as I yeah. say, particularly in astronomy, because in astronomy, you know, the track record of predicting what might be out there hasn't been so terrific. It's it's almost all been discovery by just people pointing telescopes at the sky. So if you want to say that astronomy is not science, uh, you know, you'll offend many of my 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 <laughs> friends. But <laughs> but I think that you could make the argument that yes, it's science. I know I was originally on your side there, Seth. But after listening to you, I realized that you are just the sort of charismatic leader that you would find heading up a uh, religion like the search for extraterrestrial life. So oh. now oh. I think I'm on the side of the emailer. I think, you think uh, Seth, Seth is a cult leader? Yeah, I think is he's that? running some sort of uh, E.T. cult. Well, you know, Rebecca, that, that'd be great. You know, I think Michael Crichton once said in a uh, in a talk he gave down at Caltech that said he was a religion. And all I can say to that is, if it were a religion to begin with, I think we'd have a lot more money. There'd be, <laughs> also, we'd, we'd yes. probably dress better too. There would probably be official garb we'd have to wear. But you know, the thing that distinguishes religion from science: in religion, you don't uh, require data to prove the hypothesis. And here, if you claim that you know, well, now we know they're out there. They're uh, you know around this star, eight hundred light years away, in this direction, so you need some data to prove that. And, and religion doesn't require data. You take things on faith. So I think that it is. Is different from religion. You know, all you really needed to do there is to tell me that I was on the same side of an issue as Michael Crichton and <laughs> you're convinced. Yeah. You're right. I'm on your side again. You had me at Michael Crichton? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. <laughs> convinced. It, it does bring up an interesting point, though. It, can extreme skepticism get in the way of progress? I, I don't think so. Look, uh, scientists, of course, are very, very skeptical. I mean, if somebody publishes uh, a result in your field in which they've made a major new discovery... Your reaction to that is not, oh, great, they made a major new discovery. Your reaction is, I think he's wrong and I'm going to prove it, right? So there's this built-in skepticism because nobody wants the next guy to win the Nobel Prize, right? So, you know, uh, scientists are skeptical. I mean, that's that's a fundament of of science. And, and the first thing that happens when you come out with something new is that three people write papers showing why you're wrong. 
that's good. That's good. It, go, it forces you to to back up your claims. Sure, it may slow things down sometimes, but at least it re, you know it removes the credulity that otherwise would reign. Now, Seth, when I blogged about this recently, um, there were some interesting comments. One of my commenters suggested that we shouldn't be searching for radio waves, but that we should be hunting for scalar waves. Do you have any idea what they're talking about? Well, <laughs> not not really. I mean, look, the, you know, we look for electromagnetic <laughs> radiation. Okay, we, we look for radio. We look for light. There are lots of ways you can encode information in radio or light. There are lots of different ways, and and uh, some of them are very clever and very sophisticated, and and things that we don't look for. To be quite honest, we we certainly haven't exhausted the possibilities there. I don't know what scalar waves are. He's talking about here. I don't. I don't really know. But I get emails every day from people who suggest other approaches, like you know, uh, using gravity waves. Maybe the aliens are communicating us uh, to us with gravity waves, and right. that's kind of an uh, attractive mm. idea. But you know, it's it, it doesn't make a lot of sense because gravity waves are you know they don't go any faster than radio or light, and they're very hard to make. You need to shake a star or something like that. You know that that's a real technical challenge. Much easier to build a transmitter that would fit on my desk here. And uh, that would be powerful enough to to reach uh, other star systems. Other people suggest neutrinos. And then there are those who suggest hyperdimensional physics, whatever the heck that is, or uh, <laughs> you know, telepathy or things like that. I got one for quantum entanglement. Yeah, that's a, that's a favorite because people have this idea that with quantum entanglement, you know, you can beat the speed of light. Uh, and you can send information instantaneously. It's true that quantum entanglement does involve, you know, instantaneous changes in the state of particles at great distance. But it's also true that Einstein seems to be right. It doesn't allow you to transmit information faster mm -hmm. than the speed of light. Lum exactly. You know, that's just too bad. And just there was one question came up about what the range of radio waves or radio signals would be. What I found was that narrowband signals could have a range of thousands of light years. But, of course, it all depends on the power of your transmitter and the size of your receiver. Absolutely. I mean, there's no there's no range limit. I mean, I've, I've seen in the literature many times people who quote some unknown source. I, I think I know who that unknown source is, but, but I'm not <laughs> sure. So I'm not going to say. But, you know, as, as saying that after about a light year or two, any reasonable transmitter, the, the signal would disappear into the background noise of the universe. Well, the universe does have some background noise, but you can always tease out that signal if you're willing to build a big enough antenna. I mean, right, uh, you know, I, my eyes, my eyes have a, you know, I don't know, when they're open at night, maybe they have an aperture of a quarter of an inch or third of an inch. I don't know, whatever it is. But that's good enough to pick up light coming to me from thousands of light years away, some star, mm -hmm. right? And But there are plenty of faint stars I can't see that are either, you know, too faint or just farther. All I have to do is build a big telescope and I can see them. You can always, always beat that rap by building a bigger instrument. Well, Seth, thank you for emerging from the podcasting ether to set us straight on SETI. We appreciate you always being on hand. My pleasure. Anytime. And next time religion comes up in the context of SETI, let me know. <laughs> Will do. Take care, Seth. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two genuine and one fictitious. Then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. We have a theme this week. The theme is the Amazon River. So three oh facts God. about the Amazon River. Oh boy. You guys ready? Yep. Okay, uh -huh. here we go. Item number one. 
Although not the longest river in the world, the Amazon is the biggest, containing more water than the next 10 largest rivers combined. Item number two, although not the threat often portrayed in film, schools of red-bellied piranha will occasionally feed on large animals and are responsible for about 20 human deaths per year. And item number three, the Amazon contains more fish species than the Atlantic Ocean. Evan, go first. All right. The first one in regards to it not being the longest river in the world, uh, but it's the biggest. Hmm. I don't know if it contains more water, though, than the next 10 largest rivers combined. That's we got the Nile and we've got the Nile and not sure about that one. The one about the red belly piranhas occasionally feeding on large animals and responsible for about human 20 human deaths per year. I don't see any problem with that. Film always does a bad job of portraying reality in, in lots of ways. How Piranha Act may be one of them, but I don't know, maybe not. I am feeling that this one is going to be wind up to be correct. And then there's the last one. More fish species in the Amazon than in the entire Atlantic Ocean. Tough to think uh, that that's the case. Atlantic Ocean has a lot of life in it, but, you know, a lot of that life is not fish species. There's other things going on in there. Hmm. I'm going to say... Uh, it being the biggest river containing more water than the next 10 largest rivers, that's the fiction. Okay, Bob? Yeah, Evan made a good point about um, it's not just fish in the Atlantic Ocean. I mean, the Amazon goes through a, a rainforest, and I know that rainforest has incredible biological diversity, and perhaps that could kind of, kind of you know, spill over in the Amazon as well. Uh, but still, it's, that sounds pretty bold. More fish species than the Atlantic Ocean. Piranha, yeah, I mean, I could see them feeding occasionally on large animals, but 20 human deaths per year? I, I've never heard that. A little higher than I would, than I would think. Number one, the, uh, the biggest, more than the 10 next largest combined. The Amazon is gargantuan. You know, I, I can kind of see that. More fish, the, the more fish ones, that's a tough one. I'm going to go with the, uh, the piranha. That's fiction. Okay. Jay? Yeah, the one about the Amazon being the biggest, I don't know much about how wide it is. I'm sure it varies in parts. And then we, have, uh, of course, have to, to take into account how deep it is. Yeah, the one about the piranhas and they're responsible for 20 human deaths a year. I have no reason to disbelieve that. If anyone that's seen the movie Piranha and Piranhas and Attack of the Piranhas, <laughs> I mean, they're, they're deadly and they're angry and they know what they're doing. And that's the Kelly thing about Bra them that scares <laughs> me. Kelly Brock was in that movie. They're occasionally in 3D. Enough said. Yeah. They get pissed. They do. You ever see, you take a good look at their face. I mean, they're just pissed off. So I, I don't know, man. This piranha, not good. And then finally, the last one about the Amazon containing more fish species in the Atlantic Ocean. I'm not going to doubt that. I could see more variation for some reason being in, in the Amazon. So, okay, that's going to lead me to, to saying that the first one about the largest river in the world, the Amazon, is the fake. And Rebecca? I'm torn between the first two. I can totally believe that the Amazon has more fish species than the Atlantic Ocean. The biodiversity is amazing in the Amazon and in the rainforest. So, And I find the other two both equally uh, unbelievable. Like, I could believe that the Amazon is the biggest. I, I feel like it's, it's up there in terms of being the longest. I think it's like second or third. Nile, Congo, maybe. I don't know. To contain more water than the next 10 piranhas. There's no way they could be responsible for 20 deaths a year, right? Like, 
They have a reputation, but as Jay pointed out, that reputation comes from films, and those films are, you know, completely uh, exaggerated. There's no way that they kill. I, so I don't know. This is a total coin flip for me between those two. I'm going to go with the Piranha one. I don't think they kill 20 people a year. Okay. So we got Bob and Rebecca with the Piranha, Jay and Evan with the Biggest River. And so you all agree that the Amazon contains more fish species than the Atlantic Ocean. Ugh. You all think that one is science. And that uh-huh. one is science. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Okay. But just barely. I read that fact and then I tried to verify it and it seems to be true, although I did find one source that says that they're the same, which is 3,000 fish species. So that figure seems to be pretty consistent in the references that I found that the Amazon River Basin, the Amazon River has about 3,000 different fish species. I couldn't find reliable numbers for the Atlantic Ocean. Some said less than the Amazon, some said the same. But it's probably a moving target anyway because they're in the middle of a big survey and um, they're finding more fish species. So that in five years, that may not be true anymore. But of course, they may find more fish species in the Amazon too. So I don't know. Uh, but for right now, that one is science. Let's go back to number one. Although not the longest river in the world, the Amazon is the biggest, containing more water than the next 10 largest rivers combined. Jay and Evan, you think this one is the fiction, and this one is science. Oh, Ouch. yeah, baby. All right, I'll take yeah, it. Yeah, very surprising. I mean, so you, you, you knew it was big, but it really is really big. Wow. The Amazon releases more than 200,000 cubic meters of water per second into the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, it drains a third of South America, pretty much. It uh, is about 4,000 miles or 6,400 kilometers long. Very twisty one. The Nile is a little bit longer, although that is also controversial and, you know, it depends on how you measure it and that they may swap places one and two, you know, with, with over the years at, with different measurements. Uh, but for right now, the official measurement of the Nile puts it as a little bit longer. But the Amazon is just bigger. It has, it's wider, usually between one to five miles wide on average. Gets much bigger when it floods, when, you know, during, when it, when it, uh, overflows, it can get 20 miles wide in places. Whoa. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's huge. That's what I was saying. I didn't know how wide or deep it is. The most variable figure that I have read, every source I read gave a different number for the number of tributaries that they, Amazon has. Uh, a thousand seems to be about the average. I read a thousand, eleven hundred, seventeen hundred, five hundred. I mean, it's all over the place. Um, yeah, but I think, you know, probably somewhere around a thousand or so tributaries. I guess it depends on how big you, you count, like how big a tributary do you count? And maybe in dry seasons, they dry up. Does the rainforest even have a dry season? I don't think so. Uh, well, uh, I mean, it's wet and wetter, right? Relatively I don't know that it, dry. I don't think there's an actual dry season, but I mean, it varies though. Yeah, it does vary. Of... It absolutely varies. So, yeah, I know what you're saying. That, I just mm. don't know that I would call it a dry season. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> the, the Amazon River is so big that it it can support freshwater dolphins. There's there are different species, various species of freshwater dolphins that thrive wow. in the Amazon. Yeah, they're endangered. The largest species of river dolphin, the bato. Is there. And also the anaconda, of course, which is the largest snake. And 
many species of piranha. So let's get to number two. Although but, not the threat port. But often wait, portrayed that in was film. about fish species. Yeah, you weren't including dolphins, yeah. were you? No, no, that was number three. Was about fish species. Oh, yeah. right. <laughs> this is just about the size of the river. <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> I got okay, although not the threat often portrayed in film, schools of red-bellied piranha will occasionally feed on large animals and are responsible for about 20 human deaths per year. That is fiction. Now, the red-bellied piranha are the most aggressive species of piranha, and they do sometimes uh, feed in large schools, and they can get into what is called a feeding frenzy, which is what you see you know, in the movies when it's all the water's you know, is disrupted and there's the fish are eating in a frenzied fashion. Uh, but the, the piranha mostly hmm. eat other fish. They will also eat plants. They'll eat crustaceans and they will scavenge. If anything, any meat falls into the river, they'll happily skeletonize it. Uh, the Love that notion that, which I didn't, I read one source that said that it was Teddy Roosevelt who made the observation that he saw a school of piranha skeletonize a cow in under two minutes or something. That's not probably not true. Uh, it would take them a lot longer. Oh, or you Teddy. would need a massive, a ma- like one expert estimated like 300 fish in order to pull that off. Um, Busters should get on this. Yeah, so they don't usually go after healthy, living, large animals. So if you're swimming in the Amazon, they probably will stay away from you. Hmm. At, at worst, you may get a bite if they're defending their nest, but they won't try to eat you. The crocodiles will. I, crocodiles will. I could not find a single documented human death from piranha. Huh. Really? Yeah. Now, I sources vary on this. I couldn't find any reliable source that said, yes, here's a documented, some guy got eaten in the river by piranha. There are, you know, local villagers claim they, oh, that they that there have been deaths from piranha. If you have an open wound, the blood will absolutely attract piranha. Piranha like going after the wounded and the de- and the dead and the injured, you know, and the dying. Um, they don't like going after healthy animals. So, you know, you may not want to wade into the Nile with a with a leg wound. So, um, yeah, the, the the notion that you know if you go swimming in the in the Amazon and you run across a school of piranha that they'll reduce you to bones is uh is a myth that's a that is a cinema mythology look at the bones look at the bones right yeah so good job bob and rebecca thank you mm. enjoy it for a week yeah oh, i will so jay you got a quote for us this week uh-huh <laughs> <laughs> and that this quote, quote is... this quote was sent in by a listener named chris wood this quote was written in by a man a poet Named William Butler Yeats. He was an Irish poet, 20th century. Anybody? Yeah. Uh, okay. Okay, you recognize the name at yeah. least. Thank you. Yes. Okay, and the quote is. Uh, <laughs> More than so. you did. <laughs> <laughs> Education is not the filling of a pail, but the lighting of a fire. Yeah, like I've always liked that quote. William Butler Yeats! All right, thanks, Jay. Well, thank you for joining me this week, everyone. Thank yeah, you, Steve. Steve. Thank you, Doctor. It was a lot of fun, as always. Busy show, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org. 
where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible. 